my lovely wife is out of town this weekend getting some much-needed R&R, which means I've been a single dad to six of our seven kids. One of them's off to college, so that's its own thing, but it's gone pretty well. I mean, six kids, I've managed all right. Only one of them gave me a black eye, so I'm feeling pretty good about my parenting this weekend, yeah. want to just uh, highlight a couple of things from the announcements about what's coming next. Uh, Easter, April 1st, April 1st, that's coming up, uh, which is exciting. And it's three service times, 8, 9, 15, 10, 45. So a uh, little different than our normal schedule. It's going to be a great, great morning, lots of special stuff. And uh, make sure, yeah, you bring your friends and then find a way to serve all those things. Before that, uh, the week before that, March 25th, is our baptism service. That's going to be a really awesome thing. Another great opportunity for you to bring your friends to that as well. And uh, the baptism class, again, happening today. If that's something you're interested in, thinking about, come to the class. You know, you don't have to to take the dive if you just come to the class. So don't be afraid to that. Uh, So a couple of things to be prayerful about over the next few weeks. So, yeah, we have uh, finished up the Winter Olympics, which is always a good thing because that means spring is coming, right? Last week ended the Olympics, that means spring is coming. And I don't know if you watch the Olympics, sometimes people are real big Olympics fans, sometimes people care less. I like the Olympics, I like them. And I must say, though, I'm a lot more into the Summer Olympics than the Winter Olympics. I love, like, uh, track and field, that's the stuff that really is interesting to me. I mean, I could care less about figure skating or curling, sorry, but that's just how I feel. Uh, Track and field, though, man, I'm glued to the TV for that kind of stuff. And uh, a few months ago, I read a biography of uh, an Olympian from the past, an Olympic athlete. You might recognize the name Eric Little. Uh, I read a really good biography of him, and he came to fame in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. And uh, you might remember the movie Chariots of Fire, if you're old enough to remember that movie about him. And uh, Little was a Scottish. He grew up, and he set all kinds of track records in school in Scotland. And so when it came time for the Olympics, when he was old enough for that, a lot of folks were really excited to see what he would do. And he was really a virtual lock for Olympic gold. His event was the 100-meter race, the, you know, the short sprint to the finish, and he had trained for it, run it many, many times, but when it came time for the Olympics, the 100-meter race was scheduled on a Sunday, and Eric Little was, uh, uh, you know, very strong in his Christian faith, and he was opposed to competing on Sundays, and so he decided to step away from that 100-meter race, and he decided instead he would run the the 400-meter race, because that was not scheduled on a Sunday. Well, that was a huge decision. I mean, what a big sacrifice, training all this time for years and years and then just walking away from that. And I mean, he was willing to give up on an all but guaranteed gold medal uh, to go and try to run some race that he hadn't really trained for. Pretty crazy decision. So the, the British Olympic Committee, I mean, they were very disappointed. They tried for a long time to talk him out of this decision. I mean, he was such a strong contender in the 100-meter race, but his best 400 time was really not anywhere near medal quality. And so uh, they thought it was a terrible decision, but he stuck to his convictions. And uh, he ran the 400. And as it turns out, he didn't embarrass himself. And he didn't embarrass Great Britain. He set a world record. It's crazy, yeah. Uh, you know, he basically only knew how to sprint because he was just training for the hundreds, and so he, he basically sprinted all 400 meters. When asked about his strategy afterwards, he said, I ran the first 200 meters as hard as I could, and then for the second 200 meters, with God's help, I ran harder. That was his strategy. 
Well, as a result of this really stunning performance and a result of all the publicity surrounding this big decision not to race on Sunday, Eric Little became quite a celebrity. I mean, this is the 1920s. There's no television, anything like that. He was as big a celebrity as anybody at the time. And he would travel all around Scotland and England, uh, speaking in lecture halls and in concert halls and things like that. And because he was a Christian... He would use his lectures not just to talk about himself, but he would also share the gospel. He became really pretty effective at sharing his faith and, and preaching, using his celebrity status as a real gateway to share Christ with people. And, and because he was so famous, because he was kind of a national hero, he earned quite a bit of money from his speaking engagements. This biography I read said he was making as much as $250,000 in a year. That's more than I make, so that's good. <laughs> but that's when Eric Little made another big decision. He had grown up in China. He was the son of missionary parents, and he uh, moved to Scotland to go to school and everything, and he made the decision to return to China to do his own missionary work. He gave up all the money, all the celebrity status, all the accolades in order to serve Christ in some obscure villages in China. Well, not long after Eric Little began his missionary work in China, things took a turn. The Japanese invaded China, and they were particularly aggressive in the way they were treated foreigners. The British government advised all of its citizens to leave China, but Eric Little stayed. He knew that he had important ministry to do despite the personal risk to himself. Well, eventually, Eric Little was captured by the Japanese. He was taken to a concentration camp. And his fellow prisoners, they knew about his celebrity status, and yet they all reported how humble he was, always willing to put others first. Even uh, towards the end of his life, Winston Churchill was able to secure uh, his release in a prisoner transfer. Churchill thought it would be great publicity to be able to bring a national hero home in the midst of the war. And and yet uh, Eric Little refused to leave the camp. Instead, he arranged for a pregnant woman to go and be freed in his place. And he died just a few months before the end of the war when the camp was finally liberated. So Eric Little's life is really an inspiring testimony to what a life that's just sold out for Christ can look like. He, he gave up more than most of us will ever have, right? He realized pretty early on that those things that seemed like advantages were actually disadvantages. He spent most of his time in the concentration, concentration camp just doing whatever he could to help other people, not taking advantage of things that his celebrity status might have earned for him. Eric Little found real joy in living for Christ. He had confidence, not in his own skills and abilities, as good as they were, but he had confidence in what Christ had done for him, what Christ wanted to keep doing in his life. And as we continue our series, Choose Joy, We're going to learn some of the same lessons that Eric Little models. We're going to see that joy can come from having our confidence in the right place. Our temptation is always to put our confidence in our own accomplishments, and yet we'll see that today joy comes from putting confidence not in what we've done in the past, but in what Jesus has done for us in the present and what he offers us in the future. So let's take a look at Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. And while you're opening up your Bible, I'm just going to read the first verse, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard to you. So we've said that joy is this major theme that runs all the way through the book of Philippians. There's 15 explicit references to joy in the book, and this one's maybe the most blunt. Uh, Paul just says rejoice, but then he clarifies it with a really important phrase, rejoice in the Lord. That little phrase is key because joy 
can really be found in a lot of different places. But joy that's not found in the Lord, that's not going to last long. It's not going to stand up in the face of difficulties. Joy in the Lord, that's what Paul is challenging us to. Joy in the Lord, that's what gives us confidence. And he's repeating this idea. He says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's, it's wise to repeat himself. I mean, I got seven kids. I repeat myself all the time. It's just it's what you do, you know. And he wants to make sure we get this. Rejoice in the Lord, not in anything else. He's the source of our confidence, true confidence. And Paul goes on to describe the difference between putting our confidence in the wrong things and our confidence in the Lord, finding joy in that. So the first thing he tells us is just find joy in confidence, true confidence that comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from our past accomplishments. He says in verse 3, he says, we put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in, in things we've done, past accomplishments. And Paul uses himself as an example of this. He lists his own accomplishments, not, not because he's proud of them, but he's, he's got as great a resume as anyone, and yet he doesn't find confidence in the past. Look at his list, uh, verse 4. He says, put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anybody thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, he says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So it's, it's an impressive list, really. It's a mixture of what we might call uh, natural advantages and his own achievements. Paul's listing his pedigree and his resume, and he says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, why is that important? Well, for a Jew, it's important because that's the law that Moses gave. From the beginning, uh, God created circumcision as a way to mark the Jews as God's chosen people, and he decreed that it should be done on the eighth day, when the child is eight days old. And uh, later on, when Moses gives the law to the people of Israel, this command is repeated. So that's how it's supposed to be for all Jewish boys, circumcised on the eighth day of your life. And Paul's basically just saying, hey, I've obeyed the law since birth. That's quite an accomplishment, you know. Of course, what he's really saying is that we so often put our confidence in the wrong kinds of things. We put confidence in things that are really out of our control. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I hear people talk about growing up in a Christian home and think that that should kind of count for something for them. I mean, if you grow up in a Christian home, that's great. That's good. If you're a parent who raises your kids in a Christian home, that's great, but, uh, but it doesn't really do anything for you. Each of us still has to make our own faith decision. We all have to make our own decision whether or not to embrace Christ and what he's done for us. It's not just for our family, not just in the past. So maybe as a kid, you know, maybe you followed all the rules. You never broke your curfew. You never tried drugs, whatever. That's great but that really just means you're circumcised on the eighth day. It's, it's putting confidence in the past, and especially in a past that you really didn't have that much to do with. So Paul goes on, this, this ironic list of accomplishments, this false confidence in the past, he's talking about his heritage. And again, things he's not responsible for, but what so many people try to put confidence in. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he's, he says he's of the people of Israel. In other words, he doesn't have to buy his way into God's chosen people or try to come into it later in life, something like that. He was born a Jew, born privileged in his relationship with God. And, and just to drive that point home even more, he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. This is great lineage he's got. Moses himself blessed the tribe of Benjamin, saying they were the beloved of the Lord, the tribe whom the Lord loves. 
This is the tribe that, that stuck by King David through thick and thin. So, so it's great lineage. And he caps it all off saying he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's, he's purebred, if you will. Nothing that anybody can say against him, right? We had a dog uh, that was a Scottish terrier. And when we got him, he was purebred Scottish terrier. And he had all this paperwork listing all his relatives, all these other purebred Scottish terriers. And we got that. I was like, thanks, this is great. Does this mean he's not going to poop on my carpet? Because that's really what I'm concerned about. Not so much his past as his present, right? But Paul, he rattles off all these impressive stats, but it's really just putting confidence in the past. Well, so Paul goes on to list some accomplishments. I mean, these are things he actually earned, but still he's listing them in an, an ironic way, not putting real confidence in them, but showing how, how uh, silly it is. He goes on to say, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He's talking about his own accomplishments. He was a, a Pharisee, and he was trained by one of the most uh, famous Pharisees of all. He was a real up-and-comer in the Pharisee world. And truth be told, that is quite an accomplishment. The, the kind of training that Pharisees would undergo was extensive, required a great commitment. And, and he clarifies it even further with this comment about how, how zealously he persecuted the church. I mean, that seems like kind of an odd thing for us to find confidence in. But I think he's just pointing out the fact that he wasn't just a Pharisee, but he was really good at it. Uh, he zealously guarding what he thought was right and true against outside influences. So his past is marked with some real significant pursuit of what he thought was right. He goes on, he says he followed the law 100%. He's faultless in his adherence to the law. He did everything right. You know, in the same sense, this is Eric Little's story in a nutshell. He gave himself fully to his athletic career. He trained hard. In fact, he utilized for the time a very cutting-edge training regiment. He was very careful in how he worked and how he raced, and, and it paid off. I mean, if he had raced in the 100 meters, he uh, most likely would have won gold. Uh, there's just really no question about that. And the fact that he was able to train so well for an event that he hadn't run in such a short period of time is really a testament to his dedication. But as he worked the celebrity speaking circuit, as he lived this life of a national hero, he quickly learned the same thing that Paul learned, that there's no future in the past. None of those things will ultimately bring us joy. Whatever has happened, whatever we've accomplished, however high we climb in life, that won't give us joy. Real joy is found in the only place where real confidence can be found, in knowing Christ. And that's what Paul ultimately finds his joy in. That's what he desires us to find our joy in as well. Not in the past, but in our present relationship with Christ. Passage goes on to say this, verse 7. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. See, at some point for Eric Little, at some point for Paul, all those advantages become disadvantages. And the same can be true for us. All those things that we think are to our profit can ultimately come back to hurt us if they prevent us from knowing Christ, from surrendering to him. Compared to all these things, knowing Christ is of surpassing greatness. Just let that sink in for a minute. Anything you could do on your own, any advantage you've ever had in life, just 
put it all on one side of a ledger sheet. Everything good, it's all there. Maybe it's a really long list for you. But on the other side of the ledger is just one thing, knowing Christ. Something you can't take credit for. Something that God did in our lives. God pursued us. Elsewhere, uh, Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't get any credit. So your, your ledger sheet, your, your balance sheet, has all your stuff on one side, only one thing on the other side, knowing Christ. And that side is the gain. Everything else is a loss. It all works against you in some cases if it prevents you from being honest with yourself about who you are apart from Christ's work in your life. Well, that's the picture that Paul paints here. It's, it's a balance sheet of our lives, and it's all a loss compared to knowing Christ, compared to the one thing in your life that you didn't contribute to. And if that's not a stark enough picture, if that doesn't convince you, Paul goes on to list an even more shocking comparison in the next verse. Uh, you know when you're in school and you learn a foreign language, there's always that one kid in class who wants to learn all the bad words in the language, right? So they can kind of talk, uh, curse without really cursing because it's not their language, right? Well, if you're that kid, uh, you wanted to learn all the bad words in another language, today is your lucky day because Paul's about to teach us one right here. Uh, he says in verse 8, he says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. All these things that are on his ledger, his balance sheet, he considers them all rubbish. And that word rubbish, it's not exactly rubbish. Uh, that's a kind of a genteel translation. The word in Greek is skubala. It starts with an S. It means something like uh, scat or like uh, another four-letter word that starts with an S, right? One Bible translation says, I regard these things as dung. That's the idea. It's strong language. Paul uses it on purpose. He wants to really drive this point home. Maybe he's spending too much time in prison around all these hardened inmates and soldiers. I don't know. But he uses very strong language to describe all these accomplishments, all the glory of the past. It all adds up to scubula. When you look at this ledger sheet, when you stack all the accomplishments on one side, he says they all add up to a big pile of scubula compared to knowing Christ. Nothing else compares to that. And in fact, these things can even keep us from knowing Christ. If we're finding righteousness or finding joy in all these things, that's a barrier to what God really wants us to find joy in. If we find confidence in these earthly, these fleshly things, we're really only hurting ourselves. He says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And not only that, he goes on to intensify even more what he's saying. He says, what's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. So everything, good, bad, it all fits on one side of the ledger and written in the bottom in big letters, dung. That's what it all adds up to. That's the bottom line. On the other side of the ledger, that's what counts, knowing Christ. And when you find joy in that, when you find confidence in that, comes from, not from your own accomplishments, but from Christ at work in you, then that's where you find peace. Just like Eric Little, you can walk away from anything, and you know you're still going to come out ahead. That's real confidence, and that's real joy. A couple more things I want to highlight about this passage. In verse 9, Paul continues this thought, he says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God 
and is by faith. See, Paul recognizes there's no future in the past. His real future, his real confidence is not in the righteousness he thought he could earn through his hard work and his accomplishments. He knows the real status he has, the real confidence is in his present. There's no future in the past. The real future lies in the present. Right status with God, it comes not from following all the rules, but simply from putting our faith in Christ. That's the righteousness that Paul's really boasting in here. There's no future in the past, but the real future lies in the present, in a vibrant relationship with Christ now. One of the things we offer here at Trinity from time to time is a group we call Starting Point. It's a great offering. It's designed for people who are either new to the faith or maybe just curious about Jesus, people coming back to church after a long time away. And so if that describes you, if any of those things describe you, I'd highly encourage you to check out Starting Point. We're actually going to be offering it here in a few weeks. And, uh, but even if you're not a person who uh, is just starting out in your faith, there's still a lot of value in Starting Point because really Starting Point is helpful for all of us. It's, uh, it just does a great job of sorting out some fundamental things about what it means to follow Jesus, things that uh, it's really easy for us to get confused on. And, and this, what we're talking about is actually one of the things the starting point talks about, finding confidence uh, not so much in following all the rules, but just in a relationship. Uh, we want to put the rules out front, uh, you know, just hope that God accepts us based on how well we follow all the rules, but, but that's not how it works. God starts with a relationship, and the rules come after that as a way to show love and care for us. So we get it all backwards. We, when we put our faith in Jesus, what we're really doing is we're acknowledging that we can't earn righteousness on our own. All the items on our ledger, they still don't add up to enough. We need Jesus. We don't have a righteousness of our own that comes from us trying to be good enough. Our only confidence, our only joy comes from Christ, from having a relationship with him. So we've talked about the past, how there's no future in the past. It's all a loss compared to the present, compared to knowing Christ. And we've talked about the present, how our real future is in the present. Trusting Jesus gives us confidence, gives us joy. And the next part of this passage talks about the future, putting our real confidence in the future, Paul tells us. But before we get to that part, I want us to do something, uh, something that's a bit unusual for us here at Trinity and uh, you know, I was studying this passage, one of my books I read, uh, spent several pages breaking down these verses, talking about them in a lot of detail, uh, kind of like what we've done, except a lot more detail. And the author, he gets to the end of pages and pages of all this analysis, and he says this about this passage. He says, this is one of the truly surpassing moments in Paul's writings. It would be a tragedy if its splendor was lost in analysis. Finally, therefore, we should go back and read it again and again until what we learn in the analysis is absorbed in praise and worship over the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. I think he's right. This is an amazing truth from Scripture. And so before we go on to talk about the future, I want us to just stop for a moment. I want us to do something we don't do very often here at Trinity, but I want us to just read this passage again out loud. Can you do that with me? Uh, I'll put it up on the screens, and we just read it together. Let this surpassing greatness of Christ just soak in for us a bit. So let's read. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Thank you. Thanks for humoring me on that. I I challenged us to read Philippians each day or each week in this series, and that's part of the reason. It's so worshipful in the way that it just constantly aligns us back to Christ and what he's done. So, there's no future in the past. The real future is in the present, in knowing Christ. And then Paul goes on now to talk about the glorious future we all will have. Real confidence comes in that future. Look with me at the next verses, uh, verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. So in this section, Paul's talking about the future, the joy we can find by focusing on that. And notice he starts, he says, I want to know Christ. Uh, But a moment ago, we read together that that knowing Christ is something we already do. It has surpassing greatness. So what's what's Paul talking about here in wanting to know Christ? Well, he's talking about continuing in that relationship. Knowing Christ doesn't just mean knowing him with head knowledge. It's, It's about a relationship, the way a parent knows a child or the way a husband knows a wife. It's, he's talking about growing in his relationship with Christ. He's talking about spiritual growth that will sustain us now and into the future. And he's talking, too, about one day when those of us who are Christians will eventually die, and on that day we're going to know Christ in a way that we can't even imagine right now. We can't even comprehend. We'll be face-to-face with him, knowing him in all of his glory. Paul finds confidence in knowing Christ now, and he finds joy in knowing that he can continue to grow in his relationship with Christ, and one day that relationship is going to be face-to-face. It's going to be hand-in-hand. And it might seem a little odd in a section where Paul's talking about the future to look at something that happened in the past, Christ's resurrection, but it's clear for Paul, and it should be a source of real joy for us, that Christ's resurrection, it's only the the first fruit. It's, It's a down payment of a larger resurrection to come. We're all destined for resurrection. Christ's death and resurrection is just a promise to us that death will ultimately be defeated. You know, right now, for for those of us who are Christians, death has been uh, defanged, if you will, right? The sting has taken out of it a bit, but it's still a reality. One day, you and I are going to die. But a day is coming, and we can find some real confidence in this. A day is coming when we'll all be raised from the dead, and we'll all live eternally with God, all of us who know Christ. We can have joy now, even in the midst of death, because we know that Jesus has already set into motion an end to death. He's conquered death, and a day is coming when all of us are going to experience firsthand the power of his resurrection. The hope, that hope, is how we can reverse all our values. Instead of putting confidence in our own accomplishments, putting confidence in Christ, in the power of his resurrection and the future of our own resurrection. But Paul understands we can't share in all the glories of the resurrection without also sharing in the sufferings. The two just go hand in hand. Jesus accomplished, uh, hid the future for us by his suffering. And Paul reminds us of that in chapter 2 we read earlier. And, and Paul's already said that suffering is what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus. In chapter 1 he says, It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Jesus himself said his followers would take up their cross 
in order to follow him. But Paul can find joy in sharing and suffering, not because the suffering is joyful, but because it's evidence that we have an intimate relationship with Christ. If we share with him intimately, if we truly know him, then we'll partner with him in suffering. That should bring us confidence about the future with him, that that suffering will ultimately result in new life for us. That should bring us joy, knowing we're so connected to Christ that we can even share in his suffering. And as a result of knowing Christ in these ways, in his glorious resurrection and in his suffering, the result is somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead, Paul says. Paul mentions becoming like Jesus in his death and somehow to attain resurrection from the dead. Because you can't have resurrection without first having death, right? It's Paul's just expressing further confidence in the future. Now, when we read uh, somehow, it seems like the, the door is open for doubt. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's not expressing doubt about what Jesus has accomplished. He's got great confidence and great joy in the future. I think what he's doing is simply stating it with a lot of humility. Just, just, he spent all this time talking about all the things he used to do, he used to find value in in his past, and now he's finding real value and joy in what Christ has done. And so he just comes with a humble comment about his own role. Somehow, even I will attain resurrection. As in, uh, you know, I can't even fathom that, that Jesus would be willing to suffer and die even for me, for my sake. I think that's the idea here. I mean, Paul, he's human. He's like us. He knows himself. He knows he's not perfect. I think he's just expressing the humble reality of that. And this humility leads us into one final section of the passage. We've looked at the past. There's no future in the past. We've seen confidence and joy that comes from the present in knowing Christ in a vibrant way. And, and Paul inspires us with this joyful vision of the future with our own resurrection. But he's humble about it because he knows that we still have a role to play. And I want us to talk about that. What is our role? What do we do? What should we be focused on now as we move into this future? If we're going to really experience this joy, this confidence that comes from knowing Christ, then how do we live that out? Well, the next verses tell us exactly that. Look at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this, or that I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. See, twice in these verses we see the same phrase, and it should be our focus. Press on. We forget what's behind. There's no future in the past. We strain toward what's ahead. The real future lies in what Jesus has done for us, knowing that we'll suffer as we grow in Christ, but knowing with certainty that Jesus has secured for us righteousness now and eternal life in the future. So we press on. We keep growing in our relationship with Christ. We keep growing in our relationship with each other, knowing that we need each other for growth and for encouragement. This metaphor Paul uses to to press on, it's the picture of a runner just giving their all. The phrase press on, it, it literally means to overextend yourself, running your waist, race in such a way as to just leave it all on the track. That's how we want to live our spiritual lives, giving our all for the sake of Christ. I think about Eric Little's strategy in running the 400-meter race. I run the first 200 meters as hard as I can, and then with God's help, I run the second 200 meters even harder. We press on. That's our task. That's what we throw ourselves into, having confidence in what Jesus has done for us. 
Throwing off the weight of the past, counting it all as loss, we press on, ignoring the, the siren call of complacency. We press on, not resting in what's happened, but growing in Christ, becoming like Him. We press on, gaining confidence in what He's done for us. That's where real joy is to be found. We press on. Let's pray. God, we are encouraged in uh, knowing with confidence what you've done for us, that all the things that we try to add up, they don't add up to enough. They, they don't uh, give us righteousness. All our accomplishments, uh, as much as we'd love to be able to give ourselves credit for those things, Lord, we know ultimately the credit goes to you, and we worship you knowing that. We praise you for the confidence that we can have in you, that you are trustworthy, you are faithful, and you will see us not only through the present, but into the future. And we praise you for that. Pray that you would give us the strength and the stamina we need to press on, to keep growing in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.